0: Good morning. Good morning. I know that, I know that we, that have, we had have had a, a, a huge, huge amount of technical difficulties this morning, and we apologize for that. We're so glad you guys are, uh, those of you who are still here, we'll be posting stuff up and, and trying to get everything uh, figured out in the future. So um, again, thank you guys so much for joining us here, Grace. And uh, it has been a challenging time for sure for, for many, and I know you guys are at home, uh, many of you, and you, you are worshiping. I hope still some of you are, are still here. And uh, we, th- we thank you so much for, uh, for joining us. So I want to pray, um, in part for my own sanity, because everything is going crazy this morning, but for all of us, because things are crazy in our world right now, and then we're going to dig into God's Word uh, a little bit this morning. So let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much. I thank you that no matter what struggles we have with streaming or other things, or um, there, are, there are much bigger things and bigger concerns in this world. Um, Lord, I just pray that uh, hearts and minds will be touched this morning, that your your spirit would enable our minds to understand well, enable our hearts to embrace what uh, the message is, Lord, as we uh, try to do church in these challenging times. Um, God, I just pray that, uh, again, that, that you would be with us and that you would guide us and give us wisdom and insight. And, and Lord, that we would know your love and your peace um, in a deeper way uh, than, than we would when things are when quote-unquote normal. Uh, but thank you for, for your spirit being here. I pray these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, well, social distancing continues, and uh, we are, uh, you know, here at Grace and, and hopefully streaming at least on Facebook this morning. And uh, the stay-at-home home order was given this, this past week. Uh, to increase social distancing and make sure that everybody's doing what they're supposed to do. And I just want you to know that that here at Grace, uh, we're, we're doing everything uh, according to how they'd like us to and, and being obedient to those things. Um, but but as the world tries to understand all that is going on, um, it looks for hope. And it looks for hope in in a lot of places. And there's a lot of Things going on in, on the internet, on your Facebook streams, on your Instagram st- streams, and all those things. And everybody's trying to make sense of this time that we're in. And uh, where does the hope come from? Is there hope in a, a strictly materialistic world? If, if the world that we see is all that is, is there, is there hope in that? Uh, can, can the atheist provide any hope? Uh, you know, I, I think about that, that, that worldview... And you think about how that works and, and, you, and you think, wow, where does that hope come from? What do they look to beyond uh, this world? And, and I don't think there really is anything. You know, they, they come up with a YOLO, you only live once. And, and for the Christian, that isn't, isn't true. And I don't think there's a lot of hope in that. You know, what if COVID-19 or some other terrible disease comes your way? Then, then where's your hope? In, in a moment like this, when we're uncertain about the future and the world we live, on, live in, where does hope come from? The real world has to struggle with this. We all have to struggle with this. Where does our hope come from? Uh, where do we find it? Maybe, maybe some thought that maybe it could be found in John Lennon's famed anthem, Imagine. And uh, Gal Gadot, the uh, famed actress who played Wonder Woman... Uh, started started with a bunch of her Hollywood friends they seem to think so that maybe there's hope in the lyrics of this of this song imagine that John Lennon did in fact they did a little Twitter video and uh, in this video uh, they, they begin to sing this song and um, and, and they each take a line and, and actually I was gonna subject you to that video but I'm not going to uh, because we've had some technical difficulties with videos this morning so we're gonna skip that but, but they each took a line of, in this song and, and tried to come up with, with uh, you know, where's our hope come from? Maybe if we could imagine, and this is what the song talks about, there's, there's no heaven, there's no hell. If we could imagine that really nobody owns anything, nobody has anything, if we could imagine this utopia, this, this beautiful world where, where there's no greed because nobody really owns anything, where there's, there's no selfishness, where everybody lives at peace. And the song that John Lennon sings, and, and it's really quite a catching tune, attempts to provide hope. But the problem with the song is this. It, it provides hope in the mind of humanity. The thing about humanity is we've been around for thousands of years. And for thousands of years, there has been an idea of what the utopian vision was. And, and not all of those utopian visions were the same. Rome had a different vision than, uh, you know, than Greece did, and, and, and they have different visions than the United States has. And, and, and even today, as you look at competing worldviews around the world, they all have a different idea of what this utopian vision is. I got to be honest, I wasn't even familiar with this song until the Gal Gadot and those started singing it. And then I went and, and I watched uh, the John Lennon video on YouTube of him singing the song and the video that they put together. And, and what blew my mind was this, here you have this video about setting aside material possessions and doing those kinds of things. And we can all just own everything, and yet here comes, here comes John Lennon, Lennon walking up to this palatial mansion, if you will, and, and he, as he goes into the mansion and there's this gigantic ballroom with a beautiful piano over in the corner, and, and he sits down and he begins to play and, and, and they're singing the song as all of this is happening, and, and, and yet within this song, the lyrics itself says, we need to put aside even this idea of anybody owning anything, and if we can all just get along and have peace, and, and, uh, and it dawned on me that... If the idea is that we're going to get rid of greed and possession, that, that either it's an intentional irony in the video or an unintentional one, but here's John Lennon in this beautiful mansion and all of his possessions signifying his wealth, and yet he's singing about not really having all these things, this utopian vision of peace. But the interesting thing about this song is this, that there's this song about this utopia, and yet... And yet we live in a world where humans continue to show their fallenness. They continue to show what's what's wrong with the human heart and the human soul, that things aren't right. Those in power seek more power. This worldview, this idea, this utopian vision tells us something. It tells us that we can identify as people that there is something wrong in the world. We can't quite figure it out sometimes. There is a a fallenness that has infected the human soul and the human spirit. And we know something's wrong and we have an idea of of how things should be and yet it's it's so far beyond our reach we can't accomplish it. There's a longing for something better and I, I believe that longing is placed in our hearts and our souls by God. A longing for a just world that is full of peace. We know something's wrong but what what can they, what, what's the remedy? We think if we can just get the right people in power, we, we think if we could just get, get to be king for a day that you or I could fix everything, and can I just tell you that, that I certainly can't, and I know you can't either. But history is full of kings who thought the same thing, and they failed. But scripture gives us some understanding. Scripture in Genesis chapter six, this is kind of before the flood, and, and God's recognizing the evil in the world. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, it says this, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. Everything was was evil, there was evil in the world, and, and, and those inclinations are in the heart of the human soul. In Psalm 14, it says this, starting in verse 1, it says, "...the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away, all have become corrupt." There is no one who does good, not even one. The longing in our heart for something that is good and beautiful is, is something that is placed there by God. But we should also recognize that we are marred by sin, that there really is evil in our hearts. And the human heart spews forth all of these things. So, what's the solution? The problem is evil, the problem is fallenness. What, what is the solution? Well, the solution can be found in the story of, of Jesus. And last week, we took a break from our series, The Final Days of Jesus. And, and this week, we're going to go back to that series. And, and, and you might wonder, why are we doing that? Why are we not focusing on, on coronavirus and other things? And, and, and the reason is this, that because Scripture speaks to us, and I believe God has us in this series at this time for a reason. And there is an application to our daily life and the life that we're living in the here and now. When we look at the final days of Jesus, the reality is this, the government can't send enough stimulus checks to to fix what's wrong with the world. Now don't get me wrong, I'm going to cash mine and deposit it, and you probably will too. Um, But that's not the point. They can can print as much money as they want, they can send us checks, they can come up with as many stimulus packages or social programs. One of the things that we can see from all of this is that they are not in control. And no one is. They can't fix the world by passing an economic process. And that's what, when we look at the the human heart and we look at the hope that we have, it's found in Jesus. He will heal the human heart. He will restore peace and justice and harmony in this world. And that is why we are looking, looking so closely at the days of Jesus before he gave his life on the cross. Sunday, the week before he went to the cross, it was Palm Sunday, and, and he was welcomed into Jerusalem as a king riding on a donkey, which is a symbol of peace, and, and so he was welcome, welcome, welcomed in in this way on Sunday. The very next day, Jesus, uh, in the week before he would go to the cross, on Monday, he would go and he would turn the money changer tables over and really begin to stir things up, and then on Tuesday, there was these confrontations, and Jesus had these, this teaching about with some of the parables, and that we, we covered some of those a couple of weeks ago and and about about the kingdom, and Jesus was trying to fix the eyes of his disciples on something beyond that weekend. Wednesday comes, and there's not a lot happening, but there is a couple of things happening, and we're going to pick up the story on Wednesday and move into Thursday. In the first several verses of Matthew 26, we get this picture of what is happening on Wednesday, and and in verse 3 of Matthew 26, it says this. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and to kill him. See, while everybody else was was getting the the supplies together to to get ready for the Passover, these, these elders, these religious leaders of the day with Caiaphas, the high priest, they were all getting together, and they weren't getting ready to celebrate what God had done about 1,500 years earlier, when he sent Moses to, to bring the people out of Egypt, they, he, they weren't getting ready for, for this grand celebration that took place every year. They were scheming about how they were going to get Jesus, how they were going to arrest him, and how they were going to put him to death. Well, they should have been getting together to, to prepare to celebrate God's faithfulness and God's delivery from Egypt, They were scheming. Here's the reality. We might be tempted to think that those religious leaders were not like them. We would never do something like that. But here's what we need to realize. Betrayal isn't an if, it's a when. Betrayal isn't an if, it's a when. We might look at those religious leaders and think we're not like them, but I want to tell you the story of a young man named Robert Robinson. Robert Robinson was was a young man and he lost his dad at a young age and he was a rebellious boy, perhaps in part because dad wasn't around and, and mom had had enough. She couldn't deal with him anymore. And so when he turned 14, she sent him off to what we would call today boarding school. She basically said, you go to boarding school, I can't deal with you anymore, you go there. Well, as is often the case, a troubled child who goes to a new school will find the same friends in a new place. And he did. He found the same friends. He, he developed a following. He, he had a little, a little gang, if you will. And Robert didn't do any better there. And he formed this little gang. And one night he decided to take his little group, his buddies, his supporters, his followers, and he, he said, let's go and hear this famous preacher. And and the preacher they went to hear is a name you might recognize from church history. His name was George Whitfield, and so they went to hear George Whitfield, probably to to scorn him, to make fun of him, to tease him, or or perhaps to to make fun of the in their minds the gullible souls that were there listening to George Whitfield preach. And so they would they went and you know you can almost envision them sitting in the back and kind of saying comments as as George Whitfield this. Preacher of the gospel proclaimed the good news of Jesus, and 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 perhaps these comments were just loud enough for the people around them to hear. And maybe they'd move from spot to spot and and, and talk about how ridiculous the message was. Well, something happened that night that began began to change young Robert's heart. And three years later, not that night, but three years later, he accepted the gift of Jesus. He he received Forgiveness by putting his faith and trust in Jesus. Robert, like all of us have been, was was lost and looking for purpose and meaning in a life that can only find its truest meaning and purpose in Jesus Christ. He was he was called into the ministry, and three years after he accepted Christ, so six years after he had heard that that message from George Whitfield, six years later he's he's in the ministry. He's He's growing in his relationship with Jesus. He's pastoring a congregation, and he decides to write a song, not only to celebrate his conversion to the faith, but to go along with the sermon series that he was preaching. And the song is one that, if you've grown up in the church, you may very well know it. The song is Come Thou Fount. It's one of my favorite old hymns, and it's because of verse 3 that it's one of my favorite old hymns. And I want to read verse 3 to you. This is what young Robert wrote in this song at the young age of 20. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace, now like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. I think that verse sticks with me so much because of those two lines in there. Bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. He recognized, even as a pastor, even as he grew in his faith in Jesus and he pastored a community of believers, he recognized the proneness of his own heart to wander away from God. I think I identify with that. Our hearts are prone to wander. Our, ours aren't, our hearts aren't much different from young Robert or, or the religious leaders of, of Jesus' day. And you might be thinking, no, no, don't compare me to them. Well, okay. Well, how about Judas? In chapter 26, verse 14, this is what it says about Judas, one of the 12 disciples. It says, then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Here was Judas, the the treasurer of the disciples. He kept track of the money, if you will. And it was his very responsibility that betrayed his own heart. It It was money. And he was brought over to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver because he got paid big enough. But maybe you're not like Judas. You're going, look, don't compare me to Judas. Don't compare me to the religious leaders. Don't compare me to you. I'm not like them. Well, how about Peter? Here's what it says about Peter in chapter 26, verse 31. Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee, Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Maybe you're thinking you're like Peter at this point. But listen to what Jesus says in the next verse, in verse 34. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same thing. So here's Peter, one of the, one of the three, one of the, the closest disciples to Jesus, proclaiming, I will not deny you. And if you know the story, you know that as the night progressed, Jesus did, or Peter did, in fact, betray Jesus three times. And on the third time, the, the rooster crowed. I know you're not like the religious leaders. You're not like Judas. You're not like Peter. But what about James and John? Maybe maybe you're like James and John. I mean they were very close to Jesus as well, one of the three that were close most closely surrounded Jesus in his ministry. Well, Jesus on the eve of being tortured and brought to the cross decides he's going to pray. And he goes to the garden of Gethsemane to pray. Jesus was on the eve of of being tortured. And maybe that's something you can identify with in the sense of James and and, and John as they went to this garden. They went to sleep while Jesus was suffering. His heart was, was overwhelmed with sorrow. And Jesus found them asleep not just once, but twice. And on the third time, after the second time he found him asleep, he, he, as the text reads it, he didn't even really say anything. He just went off and, and, and prayed and cried out to the Father saying, if you can take this, this cup from me, Father, do so, but not my will, but your will be done, Father. And he submits to the will. The truth is we are all prone to wander like young Robert, to portray Jesus like Judas, to deny our faith when we don't find it convenient, or to grow apathetic and fall asleep. It's not a matter of if, but when. One of the main reasons we are willing to to betray, deny, or grow apathetic towards Jesus is because we forget who he is. We forget the significance of the gospel message. We forget how powerful he is in our life. I don't mean we forget his name or we forget what we've learned in some cognitive sense, but that we forget the importance of the gospel. We forget that... Every day he is present with us. As a matter of fact, I would suggest this, that we must recognize the presence of Jesus in order to worship him. We must recognize the presence of Jesus in order to worship him. In the midst of all this betrayal and denial and apathy, we find something truly beautiful. And it starts with recognizing the presence of Jesus. Right after Matthew announced the scheming of the religious leaders at the beginning of chapter 26 and how they were scheming together to not only have Jesus arrested, but then to crucify him, to kill him. He describes this beautiful moment. I just want to read it to you. It starts in verse 6. Well, Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper. A woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why waste? Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. This incident is likely not the same one that John talks about. There's probably a couple of different in- incidents where Jesus was... was um, had this perfume poured on him and, and, and there's some different details because there's probably a couple different incidences. But one thing I noticed about this as I read the text is, is the woman doesn't come with cheap per- perfume. Com- she doesn't come, she doesn't go to the store and, and go, look, I'm preparing his body for burial, why get the expensive stuff? I'm going to buy the cheap stuff. As a matter of fact, some think this perfume probably costs about a year's wages. This is very expensive perfume. She didn't come with the cheap stuff thinking, thinking it's going to be kind of just poured out of the bottle and I can't like use it over the year. It's going to be gone. So I'll just buy some, you know, halfway decent smelling perfume so it doesn't smell bad. But I'm just going to pour that on, on him because I don't want to spend all of this money. No, she goes out and she buys the best perfume that she can afford. And she anoints him with that. Why? Because it's Jesus. Because she understood something that the disciples maybe missed. As they condemned her and said, why why, why couldn't we have used the money to to feed the poor or something like that? She understood something that they were missing. She recognized the presence of Jesus, the presence of the Messiah. And she worshipped him. And she didn't worship him halfway. She did it with everything she had. With the most expensive of perfumes. She was anointing him. She wasn't a part of the inner circle, but she recognized what the closest to Jesus managed to miss. His presence was what was more important. Not money, not even helping the poor was important as as worshiping Jesus. This is where that famous statement that Jesus proclaims, he says, you know, the poor will always be with you. This is where he says that. In other words, he's saying, I'm not going to be with you, not in the same way. But the poor will always be with you. You will always have opportunity to minister to them, and you should. This morning, I'm sitting here on a stool in an auditorium that is mostly empty. There's a few people helping me here this morning and, and doing things with sound and different things and, and, and on Facebook Live and, and stuff. And There's a few people here, but, but it's mostly empty. As a matter of fact, even as I sit here, and, and, and I, perhaps you don't hear this, but I hear the echo of my voice in the room because the the bodies aren't absorbing the echo, the chairs aren't absorbing the echo like it usually does. We're in a unique situation. We're not together in a physical sense in the body of Christ and yet we gather anyways. I'm staring into a camera. I'm not looking at people that are physically sitting here. I'm looking into a camera and I know there's people behind the camera but, but I'm just looking into a camera. It's a a different feeling. And in many ways, we might be tempted to, to think that God isn't here. His presence isn't here because sometimes I think we feed on the energy of, of our brothers and sisters being close to us and, and, and lifting our hands in worship and, and doing all those kinds of things and we, we can get distracted by technical difficulties and live stream issues that aren't working and we can get frustrated and we can get, get, get all, all these noises. You might, you might even be tempted this morning, maybe you're sitting there and, and you're going, you know what, I can get the dishes done while I listen to Pastor John preach. Or, or I can send the kids in the other room to play, so that, so you know, so that they don't annoy me, and I can kind of sit on the couch and and uh, and and really not pay that much attention, but just relax. Can I caution you against that? Don't do that. God is present with us. His spirit is present with us. He is present in this place. He is present in your home. He is present where you're sitting. Engage in that presence. Be like this this unnamed woman who comes and and baptizes Jesus, if you will, with with this expensive perfume and and pours it on him, anointing him. Be like her. Recognize the presence of God in this world and Jesus in this moment. This is a time to worship, to hear the word of God. God transcends this technology that we're using. I'm thankful for it most of the time but he transcends it his present transcends it this is a time to worship and to worship him jesus was and is the living embodiment of the gospel the day before he would be taken to the cross he was embodying the gospel message with this woman it's a message of tragedy and and beauty the tragedy is the sinfulness of humanity and the price that must be paid for that sin. The beauty is found in the God who saw fit to make the sacrifice on our behalf. In the midst of being betrayed, in the midst of Judas and, and, and Peter and James and John and the religious leaders and all of those around him in that day, and in the midst of all of them betraying him or, 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 or becoming apathetic, scheming, to have him arrested and be killed, there's this beautiful moment that Matthew puts in the midst of all of it. There is beauty in the midst of tragedy, and we see it in this story, and we see it even now. This last week, I heard the story of a, of a company in uh, Colorado Springs are associated with YWAM. I'm not sure how all the details work with the company and the, and the nonprofit, but they, they had use I think it's called hydroponics where they use uh, like fish and things like that and they grow lettuce and they had, they had a bunch of accounts and business accounts and as you can imagine you know when, when all of this stuff came down and and all of a sudden nobody was able to go out to eat a lot of their accounts were with restaurants and things and restaurants had to close some of them had to close because they couldn't afford to stay open and, and so they lo- began to lose all these accounts for lettuce and they, what are we going to do with all this lettuce and the owner being a follower of Jesus, he began to pray and, and, and that's probably an understatement as the story was told and as I listened to him interviewed, he went and he just cried out to God, what am I going to do? I've got all this lettuce. I, I, all, all my accounts are, are gone. What am I going to do with it? And, and, and they came up with a plan and he felt like God was saying, look, I have given you what you have for a reason. Use it. And so he began to work with some other nonprofits and churches in the area and they started to give the lettuce away to people in need and become a huge blessing in this context. Beauty in the midst of tragedy. His business was perhaps dying and yet God took that and redeemed it and made it something beautiful for his community. Beauty in the midst of tragedy. Jesus was the living embodiment of the gospel message but what we need to understand about the gospel message is this. The gospel is the exchange of tragedy for glory. The gospel is the exchange of tragedy for glory. Imagine if you will, that Thursday night before Jesus would go to the cross and you're, and you're sitting there and you're in a room in the upper room and, and, and I was in, in Israel and in Jerusalem uh, this last year and... Uh, went to the room where they think that maybe this was the upper room. It's not that big of a room, but there's a room there and, 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 it's, and it's an upper level and, and, and you're sitting in that and, and you're, you're listening to the conversation as they begin to celebrate the Passover meal, the Passover being what was being celebrated at that time. It's, it's, it's a story of redemption and God's faithfulness bringing the, the, the Jews and Israel out of Egypt after they had been enslaved for 400 years. And God's faithfulness in that. And he sent Moses in to do that. And and this is a celebration of that event. And very specifically, it was a celebration of of when they they made a sacrifice before God. And they took the blood from that sacrifice and put it on the doorpost. And it was a sign to the the angel of death that would come and take the firstborn from every family. That that family was faithful to God. That that family would was a follower of jesus and so passover that's where the name comes from passover don't enter in and take the the oldest born and so they were there and they were there that night and 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 there's there's a question at the beginning of the passover celebration that is always asked and that question is this how is this night different from all the others And you could imagine as you're sitting there and you're listening, especially if you had this historical context that we have knowing what's gonna happen the next day and the disciples seems like we're still confused about about the the gravity of the situation and what was gonna happen to Jesus even though he announces it in in the beginning of chapter six. He announced what was gonna happen. He had told them and prepared them but for some reason they still couldn't quite connect all the dots and, and yet this woman that anointed him seems to have connected at least some of the dots sit in there and they're, as they recline around the table and, and Jesus likely asks this question, how is this night different from all others? And in the Passover celebration, we they ask that and, and they ask it every year, But but this time it wasn't just that this night was different from all the other nights in the year, but this night, this Passover night was different from every other Passover night. How is this different from all the other Passover nights? What a loaded question that was that Thursday, as they sat down for the Passover, Passover meal. while well, they were celebrating the beauty of God's rescue of the Israelites from Egypt. They were having a meal with the one who would rescue all who would believe from the tragedy of their own sin. The gospel rises from the ashes of the worst tragedy to bring glory to God, a glory that we share in, a glory that is Not found in self-aggrandizement, but in sacrifice that was modeled to us by Jesus, who gave his life, that we, you and I, might know life. As a matter of fact, that's why we take communion. That's why we take time on a regular basis, And, and with the exception of last week, it was our first week live streaming, we had been taking communion every week, and we didn't want to confuse things and make things more complicated than they had to be so we didn't last week, but we're going to take communion today. And whenever we take communion, this is the meal we're remembering. The day before he would go to the cross, before he would be beaten, before he would be tortured, they would go and they would, and they would be in this, this upper room celebrating Passover, the last supper, as it's often called. I'm going to go over here uh, to the communion table. And as I go to the communion table... I want to just read the text and Matthew's record of it as we take communion this morning and hopefully you prepared for communion this morning and we hope, send out an email trying to help everybody prepare and, and I just want you to, to, to understand that communion is, is something that is, it's a, it's a worshipful moment and so we're going to stop at, at, at this moment and take communion so in your homes, hopefully you've prepared, if not, you could just... You could either do it after I'm finished or you could use, maybe you got a drink in your hand and something that represents some kind of bread. I encourage you to take communion this morning to remember what was happening that last week. And when we take communion, we're, we're recognizing that the bread is a representation of the body of Christ. As a matter of fact, Jesus, when he was taking communion that night, that, the Last Supper, he was he, he, in some ways, broke from tradition, from the traditional Passover um, script, if you will. And this is what he says starting in, in, in verse 26 of, of chapter 26 as he's sitting with the disciples that night. He says, While well, they were eating, Jesus took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. And when he, read, when he said those words, they, they, they took the bread and they would eat it. I almost dipped it. I'm not supposed to dip it. And then he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it. All of you, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for, for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not eat or drink from this fruit of the vine, from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. As they were celebrating the Passover, he took time to remember or, or to prepare them that the bread now would take on a new meaning. It would be his body that was broken. It would be his blood that was shed. And they would take the cup and they would drink it. When we do that here at Grace, and certainly this looks different from what, what they did in the first century. But as he, took the, as he said these words, he was preparing them for what was about to happen, as he would go to the cross. Communion is a time where we, we worship Jesus by remembering what He did. He paid the price. He paid the price. The gospel is the exchange of tragedy for glory, but God's glory is found not in self-aggrandizement, but in sacrifice, giving his own life. That is the gospel message. Danger is not found in the denial of self, but the denial of Jesus. So often we, didn't, we, we don't want to deny ourselves, we want to uplift ourselves. We, we, we live with a prideful heart. But Jesus doesn't ask us to lay down our own life. He asks us to set down our life. He said, deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow me. There is a self-sacrifice. When we run into danger, it's not when we deny ourselves. That's when we're safe. It's when we deny Jesus that we are truly dangerous. That's when we're in danger of of buying into the betrayal. Buying into the, the apathy Letting us forget about who Jesus is. Let's not for, for do that this season. We live right now in the midst of tragedy. Many are impacted by corona, and we're supposed to get much, much worse. It's on everybody's mind, it's all anybody wants to talk about. But there's a bigger tragedy to be concerned about. It's not about corona. It's not about COVID-19. It's not about, about whether we get sick or even whether we die. The bigger tragedy is this. The bigger tragedy is that we live in a fallen world. We live where sin has impacted our lives. That's the biggest tragedy of all. We were built for eternity. And we long for a better world where peace and truth and justice will be realized. But it can't be found in the way John Lennon or Gal Gadot wants it to be found. It isn't by some humanistic pursuit. It's not environmentalism. It's not a political party. It's not a a policy that can be put into place. It's not a vaccine that can be developed in a lab that will prevent the effects of sin. There is no cure for what ails this world apart from Jesus himself. Jesus' words, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. Danger is not found in the denial of self, but the denial of Jesus. Have you denied yourself and accepted Jesus? If not, maybe today's the day. You might be sitting at home. You might be sitting at home and, and you might be sitting there thinking, you know, I, I, I don't know, I'm listening to this and, and, and I'm hearing this. And I do recognize that there's something bigger in this world than COVID-19. And though that's on my mind, the the bigger thing is sin. And I've recognized that in my own life. And I need to get to a place where I deny myself and I accept Jesus. I, I lift Jesus up. If you're sitting at home and you're listening to this, I want to encourage you right now, make that decision to follow Jesus. As a matter of fact, I wanna, I wanna, I'm going to pray a prayer. The prayer isn't magic. It's not an incantation. It doesn't do anything magical. But it, if, if your heart is in it, if you're sincere about it, it can be the beginning of a relationship with Jesus of receiving forgiveness of your own sin, being justified so that you can be right before God. If that's where you're at and you're ready to do that, just pray with me. Dear Jesus, thank you for your grace, for your goodness for forgiveness of sin, for going to the cross, for shedding your blood, that my sins might be forgiven. Lord, we praise you. We worship you. We glorify you. Lord, you are good and you are holy. Lord, I put my faith and trust in you. I pray these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.